So again, sit comfortably. Let yourself listen in a kind of meditative way, which is to say some of the things might go in and be of value, some of them might not. You don't have to remember any of this except what feels useful or true to you. The rest you can just let pass by or dump into the recycling with all the rest of the recycling we do. It's actually a little bit difficult these days, even as I sit um, at home, do a little meditation and prepare for these Monday evening classes and other events that we have, um, because I carry, as I'm sure most of you do as well, the sorry state of the world. Turn on the radio or the television and see what hard times there are for so many people. Um, when Mahatma Gandhi was asked uh, what he thought of Western civilization, he replied, it would be a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, here we have the bombing and the war and the anthrax and the kind of fears of that that it brings up. And not just for us, but then we become in touch with the fears that people have all around the world whose lives are so much more insecure than we believed ours to be. You know, in the U.S. we have all these cities that are named from for other cities in the world, so that there is Moscow, Idaho, I'm sure many of you have heard of. There also happens to be a city called Baghdad, Arizona. And this is a poem entitled Baghdad, Arizona. The smart bomb talks to itself. Which Baghdad? <laughs> It has the cheerfulness, the modesty of a dancing dog drawn into the immense ear of the ocean, homing in on the whispers on the horizon, following the long swells into the shallow water, coasting on the dry winds, rolling in the chaparral, down the cattle trails and the riverbeds, over the little towns with Mexican names in Arizona, over the continental wash and dry, over a dog sleeping in a hammock and a vegetable garden where the tomato plants are growing in a wire funnel. Through a kitchen window as the breeze is parting the yellow curtains and someone is boiling an egg and the radio is playing the song about the lonesome prairie. Smart bombs. Here we are in this human realm that is in the Sanskrit entitled, sometimes it's called samsara. Samsara means the cycle of confusion or entanglement. And we can see it in the current world situation and the conflict in the Middle East, you know, and the problems on one side of fanaticism but on the other of trying to protect some certain spiritual values or seeking a certain kind of justice. The problems on the other side of wanting to have more openness in a modern way for people, but also of a consumer and kind of market-driven uh, world um, which doesn't always value human life as much as it does profits. And so we see this mixture of things, you know, that is a combination of fanaticism and greed and the loss of the sacred and racism mixed in, many kinds of suffering. Eduardo Galeano, who's a very wonderful and uh, highly um, regarded Latino poet, um, says, in the struggle of good against evil, it's always people who get killed. The terrorists killed workers from 50 countries in New York City and D.C. in the name of good against evil. And in the name of good against evil, President Bush promised vengeance. We will eliminate evil from the world, he announced. 
eliminate evil, what would good be without evil? It's not just religious fanatics who need enemies to justify their insanity. The arms industry and war machine also need enemies to justify its existence. Good and evil, evil and good, the actors change masks. The heroes become monsters and the monsters heroes in accord with the demands of the theater's playwrights. This is not new. Werner von Braun was evil when he invented the V-2 bombers that Hitler used to bomb London, but became good when he used his talents in the service of the U.S. space program. Stalin was good as an ally during World War II, but evil later when he became the leader of the evil empire. Even the Russians became good when communism failed. Today, Putin can add his voice to say, evil must be punished. Now the number one enemy of humanity is Osama bin Laden. The CIA taught him everything he knows about terrorism. Bin Laden, armed and trained by the U.S. government, was one of the principal freedom fighters against the Soviets in Afghanistan. George Bush Sr. was vice president when President Reagan called those heroes the moral equivalent of the founding fathers. Hollywood agreed when they filmed Rambo III and the Afghani Muslims were the good guys. Thirteen years later, they're the worst of the bad guys. So here we are in this time and we can sense and carry the conflict, the difficulty, the suffering of the world. And at the same time, we can also sense the genuine possibility of some transcendence, of peace, of goodwill, of a compassionate heart in the midst of it all. So much compassion also possible. And we've seen it in the figures that we most dearly admire on this earth. Dignity of Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama, and so many. If we look honestly at the world, what the Buddha described as the first noble truth, that this life, this human life, has suffering as a part woven into it. The first noble truth is alive and well. Plato put it this way, he said, only the dead will know the end of war. And so it continues in New York, in the Middle East, in Iraq, still primarily women and children who are dying. And in poor Afghanistan, which has had 20 years of civil war, you know, and the brutality of the Taliban is just the last of them, and four or five years of an incredible drought, and now this new war with so-called surgical strikes, smart bombs, it's nonsense, collateral damage, you know, trying to get rid of certain assets with precision weapons, and news blackouts, truth to tell, unless you get Al Jazeera, the Middle Eastern CNN, you really don't see what's happening. And while that goes on each day, the same number of people that died in New York die of the AIDS epidemic in Africa today and yesterday and the day before, each day. Or the same number die in a week in our auto fatalities. And while it captures the news, there is still the suffering in Burma, and the Congo, and Colombia, and Chiapas, and East Los Angeles, and Watson, two million people in prisons in America. And that's the kind of outer forms. But we all know it because when the world suffers, especially with the things that frighten us so much, like the terrorist attacks, it touches our own trauma, our own measure of sorrow, the loss we carry, the loneliness, the fears, the depression, or just the stress that we have in modern life because it's so complex and speedy and we have to keep up all our relationships and all our responsibilities, it's different than it used to be. It is. 
or the loss of people we love, death, Dios de las muertas, the day of the dead is coming. So how are we as human beings to hold all of this? There is a kind of contradiction. E.B. White said, every morning I awaken torn between the desire to save the world and the impulse to savor it. The contradiction comes out in most ancient cultures, including the Buddhist one, which has a series of myths on why the world can't end. This is a little cheery news for the evening after that <laughs> recitation of suffering. And important cheery news, because the myths, the archetypal myths, are really from someplace deeper than just our kind of thoughts. They're from the collective imagination of the elders and the ancestors on why the world can't end. And it can't end for a lot of reasons. Because a couple I knew that tried for five years to get pregnant just had a baby and it can't end. And it can't end because I was in my daughter's school and went to the elementary grades to the kindergarten and they were painting and I looked in the faces as one does of any children at that age and they were so exuberant and bursting with life. Life was just pouring out of them and they were painting and giggling and poking one another and it just couldn't stop. And it can't end because there were geese going overhead this morning. And yesterday I saw a red-shouldered hawk perched right as I entered Spirit Rock. And last week a fox, red-tailed fox in the parking lot that doesn't know anything about Baghdad or Afghanistan. And because even though we carry all the suffering of the world, we go into our supermarkets, which give us the abundance of food of the emperors of the world. Cheeses and fruits from every continent. What would you like? Figs from this country and, you know, fresh mangoes from that. And we're going down the aisle and one moment we think about a friend of ours who is sick or ill or dying. or We think about what's happening in the Middle East, in another moment we have to decide which detergent to buy for our laundry. It's bizarre, isn't it? And we pick the detergent, you know, anyway. Or what kind of yogurt are you going to buy in that case of yogurt that kind of almost overwhelms you with its names and colors? And the world can't end because a friend of mine who had cancer that was spread and went through all kinds of treatments, found out recently that her tests were all okay. And she had a reprieve and she said, this hazy autumn day where it feels like it's about to rain and sort of gray, it was that kind of day, she said, it's so beautiful. Life is so miraculous and I want to live. And it can't end because if you pick up one shovelful of dirt anywhere in this continent, it has a million forms of life in it. There's more life in a teaspoon of the soil than probably there is in all the other planets in the solar system, in one teaspoon. You know space, that great mystery out there, so to speak, out there. It's not very far away. It takes eight minutes, if you're on a rocket, to get from here to black space with stars. It's that close. Short ride, you know. And Aviation Week magazine, which is the kind of Wall Street journal of the um, avionics and, and um, both commercial and military uh, uh, world, had an article about all these pilots' descriptions and monitorings on their equipment of these strange, unidentified um, uh, vehicles that were flying near their planes. And all it could say is that they were powered by as yet unknown propulsion systems. And they kind of left it at that. I'll leave it to your imagination. 
maybe actually the war in the Middle East isn't the biggest plot that's going on. Maybe there's something else. And the fact is that we look into that deep space and there are a trillion galaxies now. About a trillion they've found. You know, in between the dark matter and the black holes, or the white holes, all of that stuff. So what do we do with this? One vision to hold the contradictions of this life is the kind of vast perspective, the, the dance of life, the rise and fall of civilizations and empires and, and species. Uh, the Leela, it's called in India, the cosmic dance. Or Maya, the dream. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. It appears in certain forms, and then what happens to your life? You grow old, and then it disappears. It's amazing. Or you go to sleep and it disappears, and you wake up. What was that? Here we are again. So is it all just a dream, illusion? The Tibetan sage Marpa, Milarepa's teacher, talked about it as an illusion, if you will, and yet when his grandson was killed, Marpa sat on the earth and wept bitterly, and his students came around and they said, I thought you said, oh master, it was all an illusion. And he looked through his tears and he said, yes, and the greatest and most difficult of all these illusions is the death of a child. Or Zen Master Isa who wrote, Dew evaporates, and all our world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. He wrote this on the death of his daughter. All our world is dew, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. It's not just a dream, a fleeting dance, don't worry. But in fact, all the visionaries who have truly seen, as you know deep in your hearts, see that with its evanescence, life becomes all the more precious and sacred. The mystics and the shamans, the sages, from Thoreau on back, the naturalists, because it is fleeting, there is only one day like this, and only one child like this one. So what advice would you give to your beloved son or daughter born on this earth? How to live, how to hold this human incarnation? The Buddha gave advice he said, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you really are, you who are the heirs to the Dharma as your inheritance. And he taught, first, to be fully human and wise or free is to see the world as it is which means that we have to embrace and honor the contradictions of this life. Gain and loss depend on each other. Pleasure and pain arise together. Day and night follow one another. Hot and cold are part of duality. This is the world into which you were born. Birth entails death. It's like you get the ticket at the beginning of the ride, you know? The, in Disneyland, they give you the ticket or wherever it is, and they tear it in half, and you keep the stub. One part is birth, and the other part is death. It is just how it is. It's not even enough to say that it's impermanent. What that means is everything dies. And birth has beauty and mystery if you attend a birth, but also pain and danger, joy and sorrow woven in to the moment you entered this world, woven into your life. And then you come in to this animal body, 
this mysterious animal body we all do. And as Carl Jung says, speaking of the erotic instinct, great force in life, it's something questionable, isn't it? And will always be whatever future set of laws may say about our erotic instinct. It belongs on one hand to the original animal nature of humans, which will exist as long as we have an animal body. But on the other hand, it is connected with the highest form of spirit. But it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in true harmony. If one or the other is missing, then an injury occurs. There's a lack of balance that slips into the pathological. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much culture makes for a sick animal. It's so paradoxical. And life lives on life. We live on other life. We are eating, as my teacher Gosananda said, we eat through the mouth and through the eyes and the ears and the senses always taking in. Our life is about eating and digesting, isn't it? And he says, so how will you eat? Will this be a dog-eat-dog world? Or will we feed one another? So much contradiction. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But then we wonder, what do we have to do to defend ourselves? Is it okay just to turn the other cheek? Our own mind has so many contradictions within it. As the Buddha says, how can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own mind unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even a loving father or mother. Our mind has all of this in it. The spiritual path that really brings us to freedom is not some formula about how we should do it the right way, the correct answer. There isn't an expert on earth that knows really the right answer at this time. I think we have to have a beginner's mind and feel our way into the answer. There isn't just one simple way, but there is a possibility of finding the heart of freedom in the midst of these contradictions of joy and sorrow and birth and death, complexity and irony and humor and all the richness of this incarnation. To be human is to embrace the contradictions, to be wise. And then, what we do in the face of the difficulties and joys of loss and change, so forth, creates our future. Second thing that the Buddha teaches. Here we have it. How do we respond? During the Second World War, a Norwegian pastor who had worked in the underground, saving many whose lives were threatened, was called into the Gestapo headquarters, told to sit in a chair opposite the Nazi officer. Before the interrogation began, the Gestapo chief took out a German pistol, a Luger, and placed it right on the desk between himself and the pastor with this light bulb shining on it in this cell. Without a moment's hesitation, the minister reached into his bag and pulled out a Bible and placed it right on the table next to the gun. And the officer demanded, why did you do that? And the minister replied, you have put your weapon out on the table, and so have I. How do we respond? Because that's what will create the future for us. History, if you will, is karma. It's the patterns of karma, cause and effect empires, power, wisdom, leadership, all those things create karma. And in New York City, that was the result of certain karma. And in the Middle East, it's the result of karma. And now we are making more karma that will be quite long-lasting. It's helpful to stop, breathe, take a big, spacious view, the big picture 
kalpas, eons, empires. Because, you know, when empires get really big, then they try to defend themselves and their sources of wealth, you know, and they get centered on their own lifestyle, whether it was the Romans or the Americans, it's pretty much the same story. And so we're part of that system of empire in a way. How will we act in the face of this? I mean, if you look in the history of Afghanistan, you can't even hardly find the so-called enemy. It's like the shadow of an enemy in these great mountains. And so many empires have come and gone for the Afghanis, if you read their history, all trying to take over that place unsuccessfully. But there we are. We actually are the ones that armed and trained the Mujahideen. Or in Iraq, we are the ones who armed and trained Saddam Hussein. And even still, the U.S. sells weapons everywhere on the earth, pretty much. And even still, there are tens of thousands of active nuclear weapons on this earth, just waiting for some terrible thing to happen. Tens of thousands. Before us, you know, there were the British and French colonies in the Middle East, and the Ottoman Empire. <coughs> of course, we know the empires of the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Dutch, and before them there were the Mughals, and before them the Mongols, and Tamerlane, and Alexander, and we kind of go back. Um, what is this Stanley Kubrick's aside where he said, the great nations have always acted like gangsters, and the small nations like prostitutes. Somewhat cynical. <laughs> but unfortunately resonant in some way. And if we look honestly with the eyes of wisdom, we see so much of the suffering is made by human beings. All these empires fighting one another, so many beings killed, often so innocently. More than ever now in modern times, the world problems are created by the human heart and mind by greed, hatred, and delusion. And if we look at the deepest roots, they're not political or military. They come out of greed and racism and hatred and ignorance and tribalism. And karma then is made by how we respond, by our intention. Will we respond out of greed you know, trying to protect out of a kind of colonial or economic colonization mentality, it will make certain kinds of karma. Or will we collectively and individually respond in a different way? What are the seeds that we plant? Henry David Thoreau said, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in the seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. What seeds will we plant? So the Buddha said this world is full of the contradictions of birth and death and gain and loss. And then what matters? is how we respond. What's important, says the Buddha in another language, is much less what arises. That's called old karma or vipaka. Finished, it's the way it is. Even tragedy. What matters is whether we can meet it with compassion. Albert Camus read this the other evening. We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes and our ravages. But our human task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to work with them and overcome them in ourselves and in others. Or Elie Wiesel, who said, Suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how one uses it. If you use it to increase the anguish of others, you are degrading 
even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall all understand that suffering can elevate and ennoble human beings as well as diminish them. He goes on, it is not always given to us to bring suffering to an end, but we can bear it consciously, and by doing so, we can begin to transform it. God help us to bear our suffering well. Maybe we have two enemies, you know, the criminals who commit terrorist acts and where there needs not to be a war, but some force for justice, yes. But maybe the other enemy is in ourselves. As Solzhenitsyn says, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of our own heart? I was visiting some friends who live in San Rafael in the canal, um, talking to their young kids. Um, their TV's on all the time. Parents don't speak English, but they watch it a lot. And I was talking to the kids and asking them with all this stuff that's happened since September 11th, how they're doing, are they doing okay? And the little ones were said, you know, it makes me really afraid. I'm frightened, five-year-old, seven-year-old. You know, and they began to ask questions. They were asking questions of their parents. Why is this happening? Who's doing it? Who's making this war happen? All the kinds of questions that children might ask. And they kept asking over and over this question and that question, hard to sleep, frightened. And finally, in sitting and talking with them, I could hear what this little boy especially was really asking. Is it going to come to San Rafael? That's what he wanted to know. He did. We're trying to sleep, you know. Is it safe in my home? Is it safe in my community? And in a way, that's what we all want to know, isn't it? Are we safe? Is our family, our friends, our loved ones, are they going to be safe? And yet, if it's not our children, it's someone's children. It is someone's children. Afghani children, or Pakistani or Iraqi children somewhere. And one day of war pays 10,000 teachers' salaries for a year. 10,000. That's in the U.S. So the Buddha says, What's important is less water rises. That's the old karma, even in tragedy. But how we meet it, whether we can meet it with compassion. The Buddha goes on, asking ourselves to look deeply. Who am I really? Am I this separate person apart from all this? If we look deeply, we'll see that we cannot claim a separate self. There's no self at all separate from the rest of it. As one of my teachers said, wisdom sees that I am nothing, and love sees that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. We are, as the Buddha said, not independent, but interdependent. And how we live creates the world. It's so apparent in this political situation, but it was apparent, you know, in the years before because of the ozone layer and the rainforests and global warming and the oceans. We are connected with them. We are connected with the animals of the earth. We are also connected with the Hindus and the Muslims and the hungry and the poor. And they cannot be ignored, any of these and they cannot be manipulated. Gandhi puts it this way, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives and breathes, and therefore I believe that if one person gains spiritually, 
the whole world gains. And if one person falls, the whole world falls to that extent. When we act from the small, separate sense of self, with a limited vision, limited imagination, what we call the body of fear, in our lives or collectively, we become possessive, rigid, demanding, frightened, entangled, controlling, attacking. You know how it is. The smaller we feel, in some ways, the more that comes out of us. And the very fears and attachments and rigidity and barriers we put up become our suffering. The more attachment, the less joy. A story of a woman whose father was the kind of John Wayne type father that was just you know, tough as nails and would do whatever he had to do himself. Nobody was ever going to help him. But he started, as he got older, got quite old, to have a series of strokes. But even after his strokes, he was out mowing his lawn and fixing his car and climbing on the ladder to clean out his gutters until he fell off the ladder and broke his hip. And even then, he didn't call anybody. He crawled into the house. You know, one of that type. And she said, I went over to try to help my father and just cook for him and do stuff. And he didn't want me around trying to help him for nothing. You know, but he continued to have strokes and he got weaker. She said, and one day he was walking along with me once his hip had healed and he was really unstable. And I put my hand out to take his hand and he pulled his hand away like, I'm not going to depend on nobody. You know that mentality. And she turned to him and she said, I don't want to hold your hand to help you. I'm trying, I'm not trying to help you, Dad. I just like to hold your hand. And so he let his hand go in hers and they walked holding hands ever since that day. For some of us, it's so hard to let the truth in that we are interdependent and that we need each other. When we see deeply, then we realize that this small sense of self that's so frightened is not who we really are. We sit, we breathe, we open to all the joys and sorrows that are given us in this life, and there comes a ground of trust, a vulnerability that is more precious than all the armoring you could ever put on and wiser. And when we open from the small sense of self, we come to realize it's us, it's just us. And there comes wisdom and ease and compassion. And the vision of interdependence that touches our natural generosity. And no matter what's happening, we become of help. Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. So how can we do it and keep our hearts open in this world? We have to honor that there's no escape from this contradiction of birth and death and joy and sorrow and gain and loss. My old uh, acquaintance and friend, Richard Strozzi Heckler, who is an Aikido teacher and body worker and various kinds of things, went and led a training some years ago, he's led a series of them, for the U.S. Army Special Forces for six months, in which he taught um, Aikido and Tai Chi, in which he taught body work and various kinds of gestalt therapy um, and ways of releasing trauma, 
he also taught them meditation. So they, this whole group of special forces for six months. Included in this was a one-month silent meditation retreat that these guys said was the hardest thing they'd ever done in their life. They were guys, the kind of guys who jump out of um, airplanes doing halo jumps, which means high altitude, low opening at night into the ocean. You jump out into the dark and you wait till you're almost down and then you pull the parachute and then you swim through the icy seas and come to a beach. That was one thing. But sitting for a month in silence, that was another. And he writes about it. He said, I enter our training building and look in the dim evening light. All is still in our barracks turned into a meditation hall. The man in front of me sits, surrounded by others, still alert, his M16 at his side, breathing quietly. Beneath his bulging biceps, his T-shirt almost screams out, Death from above, the 22nd Airborne Division, with a picture of a plane on it, a bomber. Is this a meditation retreat, I ask myself? It can't be. People don't wear t-shirts like that to meditation retreats. I look again. He appears to be meditating, deeply absorbed, but his shirt shouts out, death from above. I simply do not have a mental file for what I see. Contradiction. The worst thing you can do is not to talk to soldiers. They too need compassion. But as Sun Tzu in The Art of War says, to win a hundred victories in a hundred battles is not the highest skill. To subdue the enemy without fighting, that is truly the art of war. So there are these contradictions. They exist on this earth and we need to honor them because we can get so easily polarized and in the same way there are the limitations of you know materialism western materialistic culture which feels so threatening to much of traditional islam and traditional hinduism traditional indigenous culture has been wiped out by materialism so this is a tension that needs some care. How do we honor both? We get so easily polarized. I'll give you another example that's a big polarity just for a moment. The contradiction of abortion. The truth is, because there are these two great extremes that just fire everybody up, abortion is killing. And any woman who has ever had an abortion, or any man who's ever been part of abortion, will know if they pay attention to their body that it is a sad and grievous thing to do. And there are consequences. And anybody who says that's not true is simply not paying attention. On the other hand, it is absolutely fundamental that women have a right to their own bodies and a right to choose, and in certain circumstances, that choice of abortion, sorrowful though it may be, can be the most compassionate or best choice that's possible. But to say that it's not killing is a lie. And on the other hand, to say that we should never have abortions also How do we find a place that sees the world, not from the ideas, but from the heart? To see it with the eyes of a Buddha, to say, yes, this is suffering when there's suffering. And yes, this is injustice when there's injustice. And yes, here is the response of compassion. The great problems of humankind, greed, hatred, racism, tribalism, and the great longings for respect and justice for food and safety, 
They cannot be fundamentally solved by military solutions or by geopolitical solutions. Technically, we have the potential to feed everybody on this earth and educate them. We do. The problems have their roots in human consciousness. And when we come to meditate, as we do here, at first we might sit for personal reasons, for healing or to find a center of peace in the chaos of our life, to calm ourselves, to learn something, a kind of insight or understanding. But as we continue to breathe and sit and make the space of the Buddha within us to see this world that we're born into, we can sense that it is a revolutionary act to face our own fear and hatred and greed and prejudice and delusion and not be lost in it. It is a revolutionary act to touch our sorrows, our part of the measure of the sorrows of the world with compassion and to get up and bring that compassion back. The teachings of the Buddha of Satipatthana of mindful attention or vipassana means to see this world as it is and to hold it, to breathe and hold it in the great heart of compassion. Do you have the patience to wait till the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain still and unmoving until the right action arises by itself? That's from the Tao. I was so grateful for those three weeks before we started bombing. It felt like there was some thoughtful response along with the trauma of the September 11th. I wish we'd given ourselves months to think about what to do. Really, because we don't know so intelligently. It's very complicated. It's very hard. But we can do that in ourselves. And when we sit willingly and listen, when our silence deepens, then we hear in that stillness the cries of fear and anguish, the cries for mercy from ourselves and our families, from our communities, from the world. They're there whenever we listen and there comes all unbidden the natural compassion of the heart. And we feel when we sit and listen deeply what our place is, how we are called to act or speak or donate or assist or speak out, what seeds are being asked from us in this time. And when we are willing to sit in an honorable silence, and that silence deepens, O oh, nobly born, we begin to remember, even in the face of the sorrows, that we know there is another way, that we are part of this vast and timeless awareness that is given to every being to enter into. And yes, empires come and go, and humans come and go in all different ways. And yet we are part of something timeless and vast. What legacy do you wish to bestow on this earth? What seeds do we want to plant, no matter what happens, come what may? These days, it seems to me, are very compelling times for our spiritual practice. Now is the time, if ever, to do what we really value in our heart and to use the practices that we have to bring our full attentive heart to this life, 
to live in the reality of the present, to honor that we are a part of these great cycles of human life, to sense the brave heart that grows when we are truly listening, and for each of us to bring our own form of blessing back to the earth. So let's sit for a moment. Do you have the patience to wait until the mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the action of the heart, the right action, arises by itself? 